It's this time in our service when we begin to study from God's Word. And uh, before we do that, we ought to pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that we have the freedom to come into a place, a room like this, and uh, turn it into a place that really is a sanctuary, uh, a place where we offer you worship and give you thanks and reflect together and ask you to speak to us um, through your word, through the power of your spirit. Would you do that now, God? Be our teacher, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We are in a series studying the book of Revelation and have been now for some weeks. Uh, We're in a section of this book where Jesus writes a personal letter to the seven churches that were in Asia Minor. And we've already looked at the first four of those churches, the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. Uh, The issue at Thyatira we looked at last week, and the issue there in that church that Jesus was very concerned about was spiritual compromise. And we saw that compromise is a problem, if we're being honest, for all of us, pretty much all the time. Compromise is when we become okay with our sin, our sinful speech, uh, our sinful priorities, our sinful use of resources that God gives us, uh, our sinful values that we create and adopt and hold on to that aren't necessarily the values of Jesus, the values of the Father and the Spirit. Uh, It's like we say, well, you know, what I do is okay. After all, I'm in charge of me. It's my life. I'll do what I want when I want to do it. And we talked again last week about the fact that we rationalize our sin. We're really good at that. We become quite comfortable with our sin. But the problem with compromise is, we saw last week, it leads to spiritual death, very serious, serious consequences. And the tool that Jesus gives us to deal with spiritual compromise is this thing we mentioned last Sunday of daily repentance. Daily reliance upon the work of the Holy Spirit to guide us as we open ourselves up to him. Uh, Daily repentance. He called Jezebel, a teacher and a prophet there in Thyatira, and her followers, the ones that were listening to her teaching and embracing some of her practices, he called them to repent of their compromises the same way he calls us to repent of our compromises. Now today we're looking at the letter that Jesus writes to the church at Sardis. And he writes that letter, of course, through the Apostle John, his servant. And the issue in Sardis is a little different. The issue there isn't exactly compromise as much as it is neglect. The church at Sardis is leaving certain deeds undone, unfinished. And these deeds are important for the church to do. Uh, These are the words that Jesus wrote to the church at Sardis. He writes, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. And yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. 
I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. It's the word of God. Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the seven spirits of God. And we've already learned in weeks past, that's actually a reference to the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who works in concert with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, along with the Father, sends the Holy Spirit to the church. In fact, earlier on in Jesus' ministry, he said that the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to empower the church. He sends the Holy Spirit to convict the church of sin, where it needs to grow, where it needs to change. He sends the Holy Spirit to comfort the church, to guide his church. And those are the very things that the church at Sardis needs now most. Sadly, the church at Sardis has become the the complacent church, uh, the sleepy church, a church of compromised zeal, a church of passionless Worship, the church of feckless fellowship or weak need witness, and a largely benign group of believers, apparently more committed to keeping everything and everybody safe and satisfied and secure than they are committed to being ambassadors of Jesus in a pagan city. This church looks, uh, well, a lot like a museum. You know, once upon a time, things were happening. And uh, the things that are now on display in the church there at Sardis are just kind of a throwback to what used to be, right? Of course, sort of like a museum or maybe worse, a mausoleum. That's what Jesus is actually saying of them. It's certainly not functioning in the present as though it were the light of the world. Jesus had also taught earlier his disciples. He said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, in Sardis, they weren't doing that. Friends, following Jesus in a culture that opposes Jesus is a very high-stakes war. It always has been. In spiritual warfare, truth is at stake. In spiritual warfare, moral virtue is at stake. In spiritual warfare, right and wrong and justice are at stake. People's spiritual lives are at stake. God's glory, God's true identity is at stake. And Jesus wants this church in Sardis to mobilize and to witness. In other words, to let their light shine so that they can bring change, spiritual transformation to those people living in that city. And Jesus tells them, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. And of course, reputations are based on things we've done in the past. They have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead, says Jesus. I I read words like that. I, I swallow hard and I'm kind of like, wow, whoa, that is a sobering, sobering declaration. That is not something you would ever want Jesus to say about you or about your church. Uh, There's some kind of spiritual complacency in this church that is actually killing it. It has to do with their identity or literally 
their name. Because literally what Jesus says to them is they had a name for being alive, but they were dead. And we understand that names in this ancient culture were very often quite significant. Names called attention to accomplishments or attention to someone's character or attention to their calling or attention to their mission. And the mission of the church at Sardis was, of course, to to announce this life that we have in Jesus Christ. It was to announce that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the life, Jesus is the truth. That's what Jesus' metaphor of light was and is all about. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's what Jesus commands his followers to do, both then and now. Jesus said then, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. And that's very significant. That act of baptizing those who were professing faith in Jesus or their children, that act of baptism was actually giving people a new identity. It was giving people a new mission. It was giving them a new calling, a new name, you understand. And when people became followers of Jesus, then they became, uh, they came under the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They were now, spiritually speaking, new creatures created in Christ. And so Sardis was to bear witness to the name. That was their new identity and work and mission and calling. They were to live. They were to work. They were to worship. They were to serve in, a, in such a way as to witness to the name of the one true living God. New Testament scholar G.K. Beale says this. He says that these uh, folks there in Sardis, they had become lethargic about the radical demands of their faith in the midst of a pagan culture. Their spiritual lethargy likely included not actively witnessing to their faith before the unbelieving culture. That's what's going on here. Witness for Jesus had become perhaps too inconvenient or too risky too time-consuming, too resource-intensive, too socially costly, too uncomfortable. And so while they had a reputation or a name for being alive, that was not currently the truth about them. They were, in fact, at this point in time, dead. And so Jesus says this strange thing to them. He says, wake up. And, you know, you, you want to say, well, Jesus... Uh, Dead people don't wake up. What, what, what are you talking about? That's, that's kind of a crazy thing to say to people who are dead, but to which I think Jesus would say, I wake dead people up all the time. That's what I do, right? That, that's actually the business of Jesus. Uh, Paul, the apostle says, and he's describing all people of all time. He says, as for you, this is a description of us, of course, too. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Spiritually speaking, we are dead. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, declares Paul, who knew that very deeply and very personally. You see, saving spiritually dead people is what Jesus does. And he's doing that there in Sardis. That's what he wants to do is save some people who've become dead. And he's meeting uh, this dying church, understand, with a message of grace and a challenge 
And we'll look at that challenge in a moment. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Jesus mentions deeds unfinished. And of course, we've got to ask, well, what deeds is Jesus talking about exactly? Uh, Well, I would just say that these are the deeds that all churches, all gathered Christians, as they gather together to do the things that churches do, these are the deeds that churches have always done. This is not sexy stuff. This is not spiritual magic. This is not, you know, titillating to our senses. It's basic stuff, stuff like reaching up, although they didn't call it that, gathering together for worship. We don't often think of it this way, but when we gather here, we are witnessing to a watching world. Are you aware of that? You know that your neighbors perhaps once again watched you get in your car, drive in the snow, and go off to church, and they're thinking the same thing they always think. Those neighbors are so stupid. When are they ever going to wake up? They're wasting their time. They're wasting their energy. They're going to church again. You know who else is watching? If you have children, your children are watching. Because you know what I know about your children? Most of them don't want to go to church either. And they're thinking almost the same thing as your neighbors. But you know what? They're watching and they're learning from the things you do and don't do. Very important. Not sexy stuff. Not sexy at all. You know, when we gather here, we are witnessing to a watching world. We come here to worship the one true living God. We declare his truth together. When we sing his praises, when we read confessions of faith, when we confess our sin, all of these things, we're declaring his praises together to each other, actually to each other. We confess our sins together. We celebrate Jesus' life and Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection together. We express gratitude for our forgiveness, for his provision, for his care and his love, and we do that together as a body, the body of Jesus. We learn together from the book that he inspired, the Bible. We give of our resources. We partake of the sacraments. Our gathering here, friends, understand, is a witness, not just to each other, but to a watching world. It's one of the deeds that Sardis is leaving unfinished or neglected. Uh, churches also, again, not sexy, but they, they do something else. They reach in. People in churches connect. Uh, they practice growing together, and they practice forgiving one another. The beauty of churches is that churches are not beautiful. <laughs> I mean, ugly, warts, people who are hard to get along with, people I don't want to be friends with. Jesus says I'm supposed to love. That's the beauty of the church. It's the perfect place to practice forgiveness, practice patience. Practice being like Jesus who loves and forgives us. It's in the church where we connect to encourage each other. It's in the church where we learn to love each other. It's in the church where we care for each other and pray for each other. Here at Deer Creek Church, we do a lot of this in something called small groups. Mostly these small groups meet in homes. Well, guess what? That's how they did it in Asia Minor as well. Several thousand years ago, not much new under the sun. Churches uh, then, as well as now, reach out. They love their neighbors. They witness of their faith to their neighbors when and where appropriate. They serve their neighbors however and whenever they can. None of this is very sexy. I get it. It's not very magical. 
worship, connecting, serving. In fact, at times it's hard work, not very sexy. Well, the Christians in Sardis didn't think so either. But that's how Jesus organizes and structures his church. Always has. I presume he always will. But in Sardis, this stuff was getting too costly. You know, going to meetings where Christians gathered, identify them as one of those people who do that stuff, who follow that guy. Meeting in homes and praying together and, and sacrificing for one another was a witness to the watching world that, oh, you followed that guy, that guy, Jesus. And many of them were paying a price for it. For some, maybe it was even becoming humdrum. It just wasn't worth the effort. And so this thing was starting not to happen for many of them or happening for them only occasionally. Things like worship, things like community or serving or loving or witnessing were not a practical priority in the lives of some of these people at Sardis. Not important to them, not like it used to be. So Jesus says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're not alive, you're dead. And you need to wake up. There's a reason, too, that Jesus tells, I think, these people at Sardis to wake up. It, it has a historical uh, basis. Sardis was actually a fortress city built against a mountain. It was very heavily fortified. It was considered in ancient times to be nearly impregnable. Uh, but turns out, to the great embarrassment of this city, of this community, it was actually conquered twice in its past history. Both times the enemy had climbed quietly up the cliff at night and caught the guards on the wall sleeping, not watching. And now this same thing is happening to the Christians there in Sardis spiritually. And so Jesus says to them, here we go again, only this time it's even more important. Wake up, wake up, wake up up your deeds are unfinished in the sight of my God now to be fair and we need to be fair you know we gather here or we gather in our homes and we can serve in the name of Jesus with little opposition whatsoever in our culture but in Sardis that was not true uh, we've already seen how these churches there in Asia Minor were experiencing all kinds of opposition, all kinds of persecution, economic, religious, social types of persecution. Some of them were actually going uh, to jail. Some of them were losing their jobs. Some of them had, in fact, lost their lives. And here in Sardis, some were beginning to bail on some of the practices of the church because the pressures were just too high and the cost was just too great. And so for many, these deeds weren't getting done, not anymore. And their witnessing to a watching world was going unfinished. And this, friends, this spiritual entropy is always a great risk in any church, persecution or no persecution. It's easy as individual Christians and it's certainly easy as gathered Christians as a church to kind of unwind or wind down spiritually, to lose our focus, lose sight of our identity and our mission and our calling, which we have together. And to be honest, I got to tell you, this is one of the chief reasons why we want to be a church that plants churches. 
This is one of the big, big reasons. What better way to witness for Jesus than to be constantly starting new communities, they may not call it this, that reach up and reach in and reach out. You see, in new and fresh and powerful and dependent ways, new communities are are holding on to the Holy Spirit, asking the Holy Spirit to work, asking for the gospel to go forth in those new communities. New churches are always sharing the gospel. New churches know that their worship is a witness in this community. New churches are always reaching out. I was talking to Brett Weston this week, who's pastor at Elevate Hope Centennial, a church we, we started in September in the Centennial area. And uh, Brett was telling me that uh, he's been having some great conversations, uh, conversations with folks that they're not sure what they, you know, believe about Jesus. And, and, uh, but, but he said he's getting opportunity after opportunity to share the gospel. And then I asked him about his, their Christianity Explored uh, small group, which is a small group that just explores the gospel of Mark. And he said he had six people in their current Christianity Explored small group that, that have never read a book of the Bible, uh, you know, from, you know, start to finish. Uh, they're not certain at all about whether they believe Jesus is God, uh, uh, whether some of them are not even sure Jesus ever existed, and they're just diving into those kinds of vitally important spiritual questions. They're trying to figure out, you know, what they believe and who they follow, because after all, we all do follow somebody. Am I right? We all do. And I just praise God for Elevate Hope Centennial. I praise God for Brett and for Aaron and the whole team there. We pray for them. We support them. Our staff comes alongside them to encourage them and to help them. And we work closely together so that people will hear about Jesus, who is always saying, he said it then, he says it today, come follow me. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Now, I'll give you this piece of information. This is just FYI, right? Uh, The first week of March, we're actually flying out a couple to interview, uh, Philip and Amanda Ryan. Uh, They're praying about whether they should come here and be a church planting resident for three years. We're praying about whether they are the right couple, family to bring out here to be that resident. And I'll tell you why we do this. We do this because we know we've got deeds to do that are still unfinished things Jesus wants us to do. Now, this is also why at this time of the year, we we start praying quite earnestly uh, because Easter's coming. Did you know that? Easter is coming. Uh, And we're gonna be celebrating the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And his resurrection, we believe, is an historical event that everyone needs to know about. And when they understand the significance of those events, believe me, it changes everything. For a person, changes their values, changes where they spend their time, what they do with their resources, changes their character when they understand who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And so we start praying at this time of year, Lord, bring us lots of visitors, people who maybe don't yet know who Jesus is. And we invite friends, we invite neighbors to join us and we pray, Lord, would you just draw some of these people to yourself? And he always does. And we're deeply grateful and thankful. We also pray, God, would you help Aaron sing on key on that special day? You know, just just saying. You know what else we pray? We also pray for you. 
We pray that you guys, all of you would do the same. Start inviting people you know, people you love, people perhaps with whom you've had some conversations who might not know about Jesus. Why? Because these are the deeds we are called as a church to finish. This is the work that Jesus has given us to do. Let me add, together. Together. Not just as individuals. You see, we don't want to become spiritually complacent. We don't want to be a church who neglects the things that help us grow, number one, but also the things that help us witness to the truth of who Jesus is. We want to be a church that stays awake and stays on mission. Now, Jesus, in his grace, gives the Sardians, I'm tempted to call them Sardinians, but that would be wrong, but Sardians, he gives them three commands. These are vitally important. He tells them to remember. He tells them to hold it fast. And he tells them to repent. He says, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. And I, I know some of you probably get tired of hearing me say it, but there's that word again. Remember. You see, that is what Christians do, friends. That is what Christians have always done. We, we gather together and we remember when we read and study God's inspired, inerrant word, we're remembering. We're holding it fast. That's what we're doing. When we pray to him, we're remembering who he is, who we are, that he wants us to bring our needs, our cares, our concerns, even our mission before him. And we're remembering and holding it fast when we pray. When we gather together to worship, we remember that we have what we have received and heard, which is the gospel. It's the truth about us. It's the truth about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It's the truth about life. You see, the solution for the spiritual entropy that was happening in Sardis was to remember, hold fast, and repent. Nothing new. Nothing special, but the mundane deeds of gathering and working together to remember and to hold fast and to repent are powerful, life-changing deeds. This is precisely why, friends, the writer to the book of Hebrews, uh, he writes to encourage some believers that are being greatly persecuted. They're suffering greatly. And he wants to encourage them in the faith. And he doesn't have any sexy advice for them or any secret information, you know, just, just for them. Instead, this is what he says to them. He says, let us hold unswervingly. That's hold it fast. It's the same thing John is saying here. Jesus is saying in Revelation. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. That's the promise that Jesus is coming. And let us consider how we may spur one another, that's the together piece, on toward love and good deeds. Same thing. Not, how, well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? We asked the writer. Well, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Because, he says, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day Approaching. Friends, I'm always encouraging us to make this gathering here, this worship gathering, a personal and family priority. Why? Well, I can tell you, 
I think, in all honesty, it's not to increase attendance. That is not why. Because honestly, I don't give a fig about attendance. But I do care about our spiritual well-being, and I care about us finishing the business that Jesus has given us to finish. And bottom line, bottom line, I don't think that you can believe the things you are supposed to believe. And I don't think you can be the person you're supposed to be. And I don't think you can do the deeds that you and I have been called to do purely as individual followers of Jesus. I believe that you and I, we need the body, the bride of Jesus Christ, which is the church. I believe that. And if we're honest, we just have to admit we frequently get this wrong. And that's why we have Jesus' third command here, which is repent. Thank God for this command. Uh, Thank God that the door uh, is always open. It's open today. It was open then. It'll be open tomorrow, this door, because his mercies are new to us every morning. This is an offer of grace, don't you see? This offer, this command to repent. You see, for us to recognize our sin and quit rationalizing our behavior, to change our minds, change our behavior, all with Jesus' help, because that's the only way to do this. In fact, we don't dig around in our lives looking for sins as much as we wait for the Holy Spirit to reveal them to us. He will. He will. I mean, your sins are obvious to me, so I'm pretty sure they're going to be obvious to the Holy Spirit, right? And vice versa, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit does us that grace. You know, we don't have to do all this self-introspection to, you know, I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't ever examine yourself. That's a good thing too. But, but it's, it's not about all this, you know, internal um, examination, always looking and digging deeper for the next sin that I can find. No, the Holy Spirit will let you know what he wants you to be working on. And when he does, you are to repent, That's a grace, that's a mercy, that's a good gift and a tool that is given to us by God. And that's what Jesus offered and commanded the followers in Sardis to do. And the spiritual implications of their response are enormous. Jesus says, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now, this coming is not referring to Jesus' final coming. This coming uh, is a coming just for the church of Sardis, in fact. It's a coming of discipline. It's a coming of judgment. It's not something they can cram for, like, oh, he's coming tonight, let's get, no. It's not something they can predict. They just need to repent now, you see. And get about the deeds that are unfinished. If they don't, Jesus says, they are done. I've said it before, and this is really sad to me, but this happens in churches all the time. It's happening today. Uh, In North America, roughly about 5,000 churches close their doors every year. Now, churches are always getting planted. That's a good thing. Uh, In our denomination, it's estimated that on average, one church is planted every, approximately every week. uh, And one church closes uh, about every 10 days. So we got about a 16 church net gain in a year in our denomination, but that's not true of all denominations. What is more, that's not very much to brag about. 
Uh, in our denomination, 45% of the Presbyterian Church in America churches have 125 members or fewer. And more than half of those churches are in small towns or rural areas, many of which have static or declining populations. So do we need to plant churches? Well, if our denomination is any indicator whatsoever, you bet we need to plant churches. All churches need to be planting churches. In fact, we can't plant them fast enough. Now understand, Jesus is Lord of his church, right? Uh, Jesus has been starting and closing churches for thousands of years. And when a church gets complacent about its mission or its purpose or unclear at all about its identity, it probably needs to close. Thank God we don't have to make that decision, but Jesus will. Jesus will. Sardis is one of the saddest churches I think mentioned in these letters. Because Jesus says it has a reputation for being alive. Reputations are based on the past but it's dead. It no longer has a heart filled with love and gratitude for God, so much so that it's moved to worship and moved to witness and moved to sacrificial service, even when it's costly or even when it's difficult. Friends, we don't ever want to become that church. But mark my words, we will. We will, if we don't gather to remember and gather to hold it fast, the gospel together, and gather to repent when we don't. You see, friends, it matters what we do and don't do together. It matters. In fact, I would say this text makes it clear it's a life and death deal. Look at the promise offered to Sardis. And I could say to us, Jesus says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. So there's some people that aren't going along with this. They're not leaving deeds unfinished. You, You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. And I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Jesus says the one who is victorious, the one who finishes the deeds they've been given to do, the one who remembers and holds fast right to the end, that one will be dressed in white for all eternity. Now understand, this is not a fashion thing, right? I mean, some of you don't even like the color white. Uh, You don't want to be found in white, let alone for all eternity be dressed in white. This is not a fashion thing. Um, But uh, this is is actually a metaphor that Jesus is using that's deep and rich and beautiful. This image of white clothes or white robes is used several times just here in the book of Revelation. Revelation. Revelation 3, Revelation 6, Revelation 7, and Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, it tells us that Jesus' bride, the church, has made herself ready. Ready for what? Well, ready for the big marriage, uh, the feast. It says, fine linen, bright and clean. That means white. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people, we're told. That's the symbol here. 
You see, being dressed all in fine white linen uh, is about the good deeds done by God's people with God's help. It's all about righteousness. It's about doing the right things. It's about being the right person. Question, you ever do anything wrong that you later just regretted and wanted to change? You ever do anything that damaged a friendship, damaged a marriage, damaged a child, damaged your reputation, and you wish you could get that opportunity back to do it differently? How did that make you feel? Awful. Awful. Am I right? As a kid one time, uh, I was playing at our neighbor's house. This is the neighbor right next door to us. Carmel, Indiana, and I played with these children in that household all the time, and uh, I was in the house playing with those kids, and there on the counter in their kitchen were some silver dollars, cool-looking silver dollars, and for whatever stupid, sinful reason, I grabbed one of those silver dollars and put it in my pocket. I went home a little later, and um, at home looking at my new silver dollar and my mom wanted to know what I was looking at. Ooh, nothing, you know. Well, let me see it. No, it's a silver dollar. Where did you get that? And, you know, through a process of parental interrogation, you know how this works, (laughs) she got the truth out of me and she made me go back to the neighbors. Neighbors I saw almost every day, give them back their silver dollar Tell them what I had done. I, I, it's still emblazoned in my mind. It was a moment of such shame and, and just such guilt and such embarrassment. Another time, this is about 25 years ago, I was on a canoe trip with Ian. This is in Canada. Uh, this is above Toronto, about four hours north and east of Toronto on a lake called Apiango Lake, huge lake. And I had this whole trip planned. I mean, I love doing this. I did this just about every summer uh, with someone in, some member of my family. We'd go off into the bush country and we'd, we'd uh, canoe up rivers and on lakes and spend four or five days, sometimes longer. And this was with Ian, my, my son, my oldest son. And I, so I had it all planned out where we were going to stay this night and the next night and the next night and so on. But when we got there, the skies were very, very cloudy. We unloaded the gear, put it in the canoe, took off. Wind was howling. We had to paddle up this lake. Normally it took, takes about two and a half to three hours. Well, the wind was coming directly at us. The waves were almost three feet high. And I was fearful it was going to start raining. Well, we didn't get more than 20, 30 minutes into this paddle. And yeah, it started raining sheets of rain. And I'm paddling as hard as I can, believe me. And we're not making much headway. And I'm thinking, oh man, this is just going to mess everything up. The wind, the waves, the rain, just killing us. And I was getting more and more angry the longer we paddled up this lake, thinking, yeah, we're not going to make it to our destination. This trip isn't even going to be possible. You know, I was disappointed. I was frustrated with the weather, what God was throwing at us. So what do you think I did? I took it out on my son. started yelling at my son. 
paddle harder. I probably threw some colorful language into it. Paddle harder. You've got to paddle harder. 12 years old. I got a million stories like that. Stories of the darkness in me. Times that I've partnered badly with Holly, times that I've parented badly, times that I've pastored badly, times that I led badly, just shameful, ugly, sinful stuff. Imagine living in a place and a time where you never do anything like that ever again. Imagine living day after day, week after week, year after year, never saying the wrong thing. Never doing something selfish. Never hurting another person. Never dishonoring Jesus. Never doing anything you're ashamed of or want to hide from others. Imagine living hundreds, even thousands of years without any self-serving actions or attitudes or without any deceit or without any shrinking back when you should have courage or without any guilt or without blame or without remorse. No more staring at the ceiling at 2 a.m. wishing, just wishing you could do that over again. Imagine people looking at you and seeing just an unending stream of moral beauty and excellence and perfection and goodness and kindness and gentleness. You'd be looking a lot like Jesus, only you would be you. Imagine that. Anybody here want that? You know, that is what we all want. And that's the image here that Jesus is painting to the church at Sardis. Jesus says, they will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. And you got to ask, well, how'd they get worthy? What'd they do? Well, they didn't really do anything. They remembered what they had received and what they had heard. And they held it fast. And when they failed at that, they repented. And I'll tell you, friends, if we do that, Jesus will give us his righteousness. And he will give us his worthiness. And we'll be dressed in white, white garments. That's what being victorious is. And it's beautiful. Isn't Jesus beautiful and excellent and good and kind and gentle and righteous? Isn't following Jesus a wonderful thing? A thing maybe even worth dying for? I think it is. 
May God help us to remember and to hold fast and to repent. Amen. Father, we are thankful that we can gather in this room and remember together. We are thankful that we have certain things that we have received and that we have heard about that we hold fast to, Father, the gospel, the truth about who you are, who we are, and what you've done for us, God. And Father, where we need to, would your spirit reveal to us where we are slipping, where we need to repent, if that's what we need to do. God, as a church, keep us in a place where we are about the deeds you've given us to do and help us, God, to speak into each other's life and to be a bride, a bride for Jesus that is dressed in white and radiant and beautiful. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.